I wasn't expecting to get thrown under the bus like that, but I guess I'm old. <clears throat> I appreciate the invitation to be here and, and bring what's called a, one of the circuit sermons where uh, Mine Road and Peckway will, will uh, pastors will visit each other's churches and bring sermons. So I'm excited to be here and, and also um, looking forward to when um, you all can come to our church and uh, share a sermon with us. It's good to do this on the, the first Sunday of the year. Uh, I can, with boldness and complete confidence, say that this will be the best sermon you've heard this year. Next Sunday, I probably wouldn't be able to say that, so I had to take that opportunity. Well, several weeks ago, uh, there was a small, uh, there was a cluster of tornadoes that swept through Kentucky, and on the edges of those storms. Um, it was, of course, windy. That's what you would expect with tornadoes. But as you move toward the center of the storm, there was a wide swatch of, of damaging winds. Um, and we've, we've read many of the stories and observed the video footage of the wide path of, of destruction. But at the very center of that storm, there was um, a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky that we've read about and seen pictures of. Over 100 people worked there, and they were reportedly denied evacuation by their boss, and the factory was in the eye of the storm, and it was leveled. And as a result of that, many of the employees were badly injured, and uh, some of them died. The candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, was at the eye of the storm. The eye of the storm is the center. It's the focal point, and it's where the most danger lies. The destruction is the worst at the center of the storm. Other storms uh, are farther out from the center, but at the eye of the storm is the worst damage. So today we want to talk about idolatry, and I feel like idolatry is sort of like a tornado where there's winds further out, and the closer you get to the center, the more dangerous it becomes. Often, however, we concentrate our discussion on the fringes of the storm, and I think we do ourselves great disservice by doing that. So we want to work our way outward in towards the eye of the storm, the center of the storm, the center of idolatry. What is the eye of idolatry? So before we get there, um, it's important to, note, or important to know what worship is. I think idolatry is the worship of idols, but what is worship? And what is idols? Worship is the combination of two old English words, worth and ship. So today you'll hear of friendship. It's the quality of the friend that you are. Uh, craftsmanship, the quality of your craft. Or maybe sportsmanship, the quality of uh, your attitude uh, during a game. So worship then is the quality of your worth or being worthy, declaring the value. So why do we worship God? Well, we worship God because he is worthy. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. A central part of a Christian's calling is to declare the value and worth of God. God is worthy. So I think in the Bible there's two different words that uh, describe worship. One would be bowing down, and another would be serving or offering 
or sacrifice. And I'm suggesting that worship involves all of our being in three areas. Um, one is listening, the next one is speaking, and the last one is doing. So in listening, we observe, and we hear from God. In speaking, we, we tell, we talk, we rehearse, we tell others, and we remember what God has done. And in doing is obedience, sacrifice, and offerings. Our worship is a response to God. First, God reveals himself to us, and then we respond to him. So we have hearing from God, acknowledging God, and our response to God. You can't live for God until you know him, and you can't know him until you hear about him or from him. And we call this gathering here this morning a worship service. And so we're gathered here to hear from God and his word, to give value, to give him the value and the worth that he deserves, and then finally to offer ourselves up as a sacrifice in obedience to him. Worship is a package. We listen to God, we acknowledge him, recognize his worth, and then we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, during the time of the patriarchs, worship seems to be a bit vague. You don't read a whole lot about specific instructions given for worship before the law. But one thing is clear, they were to worship God and God alone. Then in the days of Moses and the giving of the law, there was specific instructions given to God's people in how to worship, where to worship, and who should worship. Um, there was large formal assemblies called convocations where they were uh, told to come together as a congregation to worship. Uh, there was the Passover, the unleavened bread. These are feasts of the Lord, special convocations where the congregation of the Israelites came together to worship. The tabernacle, you remember, was a holy place. And the design of the tabernacle reminded the children of Israel that God was near them and with them, but he was holy and still somewhat separated from them. He was in their midst and yet a little bit distant. He was approachable only with the aid of a mediator or a priest. So there was a proper way and a time to worship God and certain offerings that were required to go along with that. The outer court of the tabernacle was somewhat accessible. The inner court was more holy, and then beyond the veil, only one person went once a year. So there was holy people and holy places at holy times. All of these details are spelled out in the law, how they were to worship. The first commandment stated it clearly, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So during the time of the patri patriarchs, uh, the worship was sort of unclear, or not much direction was given, but God was to receive the worship. Under the law, there was much more detail, but one thing still remained clear, and that, that is God is the one that we are to ascribe value to. So even during the time where worship was very formal in the tabernacle and spelled out with many, many instructions and details given, even then, God was working in the hearts of his people. Uh, listen as I read some verses from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, God through Moses teaches the people to store God's instructions in their hearts, 
in their hearts, to teach them to their children while they're sitting or standing or walking, and to put the instructions on their doors and have constant reminders of who God is, a constant call to worship. And in Jeremiah 7, the Lord was angered by his people because they were offering sacrifices, but in their walk with the Lord, they were disobedient. They were going backward and not forward. In Isaiah 1, verse 11, and I'll read verse 11 to 19. And listen to this as I read and think about, even in the Old Testament, we sort of look down on the Old Testament people as though they didn't have much, and they weren't, um, they were sort of outward in their worship. But listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and our appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So even in the Old Testament, God was concerned, most concerned, about their hearts. The prophet Samuel uh, tells King Saul that in God's eyes, obedience is better than sacrifice. It seems that obedience to God is the highest and ultimate form of worship. God puts a premium on obedience, and without obedience, our lifted hands are full of blood guiltiness and become a mockery of God's holy name. Micah 6, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, a thousand, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn child? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your, thy God. So in the Old Testament, it's clear that God was concerned about worship. And it wasn't simply external, but he wanted their hearts to be turned toward him in obedience. Well, what about under the New Covenant? In the New Testament, what did worship look like? Well, when Jesus took up residence on the earth, he visited the temple, but on many occasions he was found in the synagogues. He worshiped mostly in the synagogues. And on one occasion, Jesus spoke very clearly as to the question of worship. In John 4, you remember he met the woman at the well, and she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in the mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. But we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus agrees with Isaiah and Jeremiah that true worship is not a place or a process, but it is worshiping God and God alone. In Matthew 15, Jesus' discussion with the scribes and Pharisees, after they accused him and his disciples for not keeping the traditions, he said this, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They lifted man's traditions to the levels, level of God's law. So Jesus said you can say the right thing, and you can be at the right location for worship, but if your heart is full of rebellion, you're not a worshiper of the one true God. You are an idolater. So Paul's letters gave details to the church as to how to worship. I'm sorry, uh, Paul's letter gave many details to the church, but it seems that one thing that was missing was instructions on how to worship. So Paul says a few things, gather together, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. Um, and there seems to be some correction to some wrong practices that were going on at the time, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of details given. In Romans 12, however, he, he does address this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect. It seems as if the reason Paul mentioned worship so little is that um, he expected our entire lives to be a worshipful experience in obedience to Christ. Every day our act of worship is to be a sweet aroma of obedience to the Father, to give our life in every aspect to him and to no other. So in the new covenant, we are now the temple or the dwelling place of God. He dwells within us. And just like in Moses' day, under the law, the temple was a central point of worship. So now, the temple, our bodies, are the central point of worship. We were designed to worship. We should worship God because he is worthy. And whether we know it or not, we are constantly worshiping. And with God's presence in us, our whole being should be constantly worshiping in obedience to him. Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. In Romans 1.9, Paul says, I serve God with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. The word serve is translated from the Greek word worship. Paul offered his life in service as worship to God. 
He says it again in chapter 15. God gave me grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. For Paul, preaching the gospel was an act of worship. He was obedient to the Lord's call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And when he tells others about the value of Christ, he is worshiping. When we tell others about the value of God, we are worshiping. So in the Old Covenant, God required Israelites to serve him through the priesthood. They established sacrificial systems in the temple where he dwelt. And in the New Covenant, uh, we are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. And just like the temple was a continual flurry of worship, so our lives should continually point others to Christ. Our lives should be a constant reminder of obedient sacrifice to our Creator, the one true God. So the places and practices of worship have changed some through the years, but who we are to worship and why we are to worship never changes. We worship God because he is worthy, and we worship God alone. Well, what about idolatry? I've given you just a brief synopsis of what worship is. What is idolatry? Let's look at idolatry in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. There were many idols and false gods in the Old Testament. Uh, we read of Asherim, Teraphim, Baal. Uh, in our Sunday school lesson this morning, we, we learned that the God that Rachel took was connected to possessions or inheritance. So there were, there were gods in the Old Testament, many gods. And many of their, um, the methods of worshiping these gods were, were disgusting and gruesome and full of lewdness and filthiness. And many Israelite kings went after false gods. And these gods were all different, but there was something that connected each one of them. I'd like to look at one very glaring example of idolatry in the Old Testament, and you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 20, God spoke the law to Moses, who was to dictate the law and teach the children of Israel to live it. And he starts out in verse 2 by saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." So he goes on to tell Moses about the altar, how to build it. He gives laws for servants, how to handle violence. There were laws for your animals, laws for your property. There were Sabbath laws, laws for the holy days, lots of laws. He even gave instructions for the tabernacle, the place where God lived. He tells the priests what to wear, what to sacrifice. He sets apart Aaron and his sons tells them to offer, what to offer, and when to offer, and how often to offer. He tells about the labor of the oil and of the incense. 
and he gave a lot of instructions. And these instructions took a lot of time. And in chapter 32, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that should go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. In verse 2, Aaron said to them, bring, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, and listen to this, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And this is the eye of idolatry. It is the center of idol worship to give credit to a thing for what only God can do. To credit something other than God for what he has done, is doing, or will do. That is the eye of idolatry. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings. And they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. So the eye, or center, of idolatry is giving credit for what God has done to someone or something else. And I can't believe that even when the law was being given to Moses, that they were giving credit to an idol that was poured into a mold instead of God Almighty who had delivered them from the Egyptians. God had sent Joseph ahead of them and prepared the way for them to be preserved, to be saved. God had led them out with a strong right arm, which was heavy against the Egyptians. God did it not the calf. And when they credited the calf for what God had done, that's idolatry. I would like to say that self-preservation, the preservation of self, is always at the core of idolatry. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. They ascribed to idols what only God could do, and that was to preserve them, to save them. In Numbers 21, we read about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they were journeying from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And this is in Numbers 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came 
to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, and it was so. If a serpent serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So after they murmured to the Lord, the Lord sent fiery serpents, and many of the children of Israel died. But after they cried out for relief and repented, they were saved by looking toward the serpent on a pole that God had commanded Moses to lift up. God miraculously, again, miraculously delivered and preserved them when they looked to the bronze serpent on a pole. Now, if you uh, fast forward 800 years and you move over to 2 Kings 18, it says that it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, and he broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and they caught it. Nehushtan. Now, Nehushtan just means something bronze. But here, 800 years later, these people, after being delivered mightily by the hand of God from the fiery serpents, were offering incense to this Nehushtan. They were giving credit to this thing that was made by man for what only God could do. They were in idolatry. The bronze serpent had survived for 800 years. And no doubt the story was told and retold. The irony of being delivered from a fiery serpent by looking to a fiery serpent. No doubt their great, 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 great grandfather had the courage to look at this serpent. And because of that, he had been delivered, preserved, saved. So it was carried with them, and it was worshipped for 800 years before Hezekiah destroys it. Now why would Hezekiah destroy such a precious relic, something that had preserved and delivered and saved their ancestors? Why destroy it? Well, he saw very clearly that they were giving the credit to this bronze serpent and worshiping it when they were told to worship God and God alone. It is God and God alone that preserved the Israelites. Do we have any trouble seeing that? They were crediting Nehushtan for healing them and saving them and preserving them when it was God who had done it. And this is idolatry. And when we credit our being preserved to something other than God, it is also idolatry. In the New Testament, in John 5, 21, it says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And in Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, 
Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, which is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Jesus often called the religious leaders of his day adulterers, idolaters. They were worshiping the wrong gods. They were unfaithful to the Lord who was standing right in front of them. They poured over the scriptures, longing to see the Messiah, but they missed him because of the idolatry of their hearts. They wanted a Messiah to provide national freedom and relief from their oppressors. But Jesus came to provide spiritual freedom and eternal relief from the devil. They desired a Messiah who would stand up for their injustices, who would fight to deliver them from the Romans, someone who could restore the national pride that the Jews once held dear. Jesus said that his kingdom was not from this world. Now here's some of my personal observations based on some of the things that we read about here this morning. I've heard many times and heard of many different things that have been given the label of idolatry. Sports, entertainment, hobbies, work. I believe that idolatry is ascribing glory that is due God to something else. I have never heard anyone thank the NFL or Major League Baseball for saving or preserving them. I've never heard anyone say that entertainment or a hobby has preserved their life or helped us get to where we are as a church. These things may be vices and weights that need to be cast off, but I personally wouldn't classify them as idolatry and certainly not the eye of idolatry or the root cause. I kind of feel like we might be way off on what we have called and labeled idolatry. And these next few minutes, we want to just kind of make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable, um, especially maybe for some of us. But I'm not preaching to people in India or Africa or Haiti or um, some other godless nation. I'm preaching to conservative Anabaptist folks like you and me. So let's just allow ourselves to be a little bit uncomfortable and see if we can learn something together. Remember, these are my observations. This is not the word of God, so take them or leave them. I would like to sort of begin my observations at what I would call the edge of the storm and work our way towards the center or the eye of the storm. I think that the most idolatrous people are found in North America and in particular the United States of America. I believe that idolatry is all about self-preservation and ascribing salvation and preservation that God has given us to someone or something else. And just like the leaders of Jesus' day wished to be preserved in the form of national security, I believe that we ascribe too much glory to America as a place of salvation, preservation, and peace, when clearly God is our savior and protector and provider. Our security is not found in a nation or a national movement, but it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Nationalism is an idol that we face and we will continue to face. Remember, it is God and God alone 
who preserves us. So we've zoomed in from the world to America. Um, bear with me while we continue to move towards the eye of idolatry. In America, there's a little place called Lancaster County. And in many parts of the world, and even parts of our own country, we uh, see people who work hard, who are toiling and working diligently to scratch together enough money to buy food. But here in Lancaster County, many of us do not work hard to provide for our needs. Our needs are met almost automatically. Some of us have made so much money that our money now makes money. And as we're sleeping, we're making money. We have no needs. We have more than enough. We have stewarded well, and we have stored much. And we have no need of anyone to help us. We have preserved ourselves, and we do not need God to do it. Now, that's strongly stated, but you get the point, right? To discredit our need to God, to sustain us, is idolatry. It is God who preserves us. And when we ascribe the riches that he has given us, or when we ascribe the preservation that only comes from God to something else, that is idolatry. Now, in Lancaster County, there's a little place called Peckway Church. So we're getting pretty close to home, but you'll have to uh, brace yourself a little bit. But if you're like us at Weavertown, you've been blessed to have fathers who have given you a heritage. They have handed us something of value. You know, we have followed in their footsteps. We have emulated them. After all, it was our ancestors and spiritual fathers who charted the course that we are now on. And I've heard people say that we owe them our lives in a debt of gratitude. Our Anabaptist culture has long-standing traditions and good, strong heritage. But when we ascribe to men or to a group of people what really belongs to God, it is idolatry. It was God who saved you, and it is God who keeps saving you and God alone. Men of Simons didn't save you, and Jacob Amon didn't preserve you, and Men of Beachy doesn't sustain your soul. But it's very important for us to be identified by all three of these men. At Weavertown, we call ourselves Beachy Amish Mennonite. All three of these men are represented in our name. It's who we are. But where is God? He's not on our sign. Our sign is reserved for Men of Simons and Jacob Almond. So at times I worry that our Anabaptist heritage has become Nehushtan. We have ascribed to a man-made thing what is really given to us by God, and that is idolatry. When God and his word has preserved us and saved us, and we ascribe that to a man, that is idolatry. And when I hear someone say that our Anabaptist heritage has preserved us, the first thing I think of is a bronze serpent on a pole. Nehushtan, God and his word are preserving us. So we have uh, zoomed in from the world to North America, to Lancaster County, to this church. We're one step away from the eye of idolatry. So worship is about remembering what God has done, telling others what he has done, 
and living obediently for him, recognizing that God alone preserves us. Idolatry is remembering what God has done and giving someone else or something else the credit for that. And I believe at the very center of idolatry, the eye of idolatry is me. It is I. I am at the center of idolatry. It is my proud heart that takes credit for preserving me. I did it. I can do it. I'm a good person. You didn't enter the kingdom. You didn't enter the kingdom of God and receive salvation and preservation of your soul by being an American. You didn't do it by being rich or a church member. And you can't get your salvation by being good. The only way you can preserve your life is to give it up as a sacrifice, an act of worship to God. He is the one who gives life and sustains your life and provides for your eternal life. God deserves the credit, all the credit, and you deserve none. I am the eye of idolatry. When, di when I disobey God, I'm saying that I can preserve myself outside of his will. I mentioned earlier that worship involves listening, remembering, and offering. Offering ourselves as a sacrifice, as a drink offering poured out before God. The Israelites, as they offered their sacrifices, they offered a lamb as a sacrifice, and then the instruction was to offer the accompanying drink offering, which was their response to God. It was the lamb for the people, but it was the drink offering for God. Their lives were to be poured out on the altar for God. And so often we miss the last part and we become idolaters. If we say that we are worshipers, but we are not listening to God in obedient surrender, we are idolaters. And if we say that we are worshipers, but we provide no offering of service to God, no drink offering of our lives poured out in surrender to him, we are idolaters. If we say that we are worshipers, but we are not telling others what God has done and not making his name known, we are idolaters. Isaiah worshiped. He said, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. David and Solomon were worshipers. And they said, yours, O Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Even Nebuchadnezzar became a worshiper of the one true God. When he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. There have always been worshipers, people who praise God for preserving their life, people who see God as worthy. And there have always been idolaters, people who take the credit for what God has done, people who are at the center of their own universe. Idolatry has a wide path, a smorgasbord of gods. Worship of God is narrow. There is one God and he alone preserves our lives. We worship God because he 
is worthy. Will you stand with me for prayer? Lord, we stand before you.